reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapters 5, 1 to 12, 6, 9 to 13, 22, 34 to 40. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I can't tell you how, uh, how wonderful it is to be here. I'm so glad, glad Scott asked me to preach. Um, you know, we left this church for a year so that Scott could get acclimated. And we discovered a year away that we really wanted to come back. You're our family, even though there's change and, and transition uh, we're so glad to be here, and uh, so let me plunge right into what I want to say this morning. One of the great heartaches in our time, certainly for me, is politics and the whole political environment in which we find ourselves. It's tearing our country and it's tearing our churches apart. I have Christian friends of long standing with whom I am no longer as comfortable as I used to be, with whom I now have to tread very carefully because of politics. Many of us have parents or grown children or church friends we cannot talk to or we can only talk to a little bit and obliquely, again, because of politics. What has gone wrong and what can we do about it? Well, over the next four weeks, I want to try to answer those questions, at least in part. 
we will not, until the end, the final talk, uh, talk about particular issues, what I'm going to call downstream politics, uh, but rather about the attitudes and perspectives that the Bible wants us to bring to public life, what I'm going to call upstream politics. And my hope is that the wisdom of God will help us find our way so that we're better able to love our neighbors without, in the process of trying to love them, hate each other because we disagree about the best way to love them. Let me begin by saying that the option of disengaging from political activity is not an option for the Christian. In other words, the solution to the prospect of political disagreement in the church is not to withdraw from public life and responsibility or from talking with each other about public life. We need each other. We need each other's wisdom and insight. We will not all engage in the same way, but if we are going to be Jesus' people, we will engage. We know that because of the way Jesus taught us to pray. He taught us to pray, your kingdom come, that is your government, your reign, your rule uh, uh, come, Lord, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God cares just as much, just as much about what goes on on earth as he cares about what goes on in heaven. And so the important question is not should Christians be involved in public life, in political things. It is rather how. How do we do it? What's our modus operandi? How do we do it? And the Beatitudes are a wonderful place to start as we seek to answer that question. They go to the heart of the sorts of attitudes and behaviors that Jesus intends for us to bring to the whole of life, including our public lives. F.F. Bruce writes of them, quote, we are near heaven here, unquote. And if you and I are to give earth a taste of God's heaven, living by the Beatitudes is how we do it. We're going to take note this morning largely of the third one, um, we're going to actually allude to nearly all of them, but we're going to focus in on the third one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Two questions about that beatitude. What does it mean to hunger and to thirst after righteousness? And two, how does such hungering show itself in our public living, in our political living? Now, the word righteousness is not at heart personal rectitude. It's not adherence to a moral code. This may issue, in fact does, it, it issues from righteousness, but it is not its essence. Righteousness is at heart relational. It isn't transactional. I mean, it isn't just uh, uh, moralistic. Uh, righteousness is relational and it has a personal meaning and it has a cosmic meaning. And let me uh, spell those out for you. Personally, to be righteous is to be right with God. And he promised that we will be satisfied. We will be filled up. We are made for love with God 
and with each other. And when love works, we are satisfied. We're filled up. And when love doesn't work, we starve. When love doesn't work, we are miserable. So that's the personal meaning. Now, the cosmic meaning of righteousness flows out of the personal meaning in the sense that as personal righteousness fills people, it ends up filling the earth. It spills over into all the relationships we have and all the things that we do. Um, to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long for friends and family, for enemies even, for political adversaries, and for people across races and across the nations. First, to love each other. And it means, secondly, to long for everyone to see God as he is, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates, to enjoy him and honor him in all things, in all that we, they say and do, in every motivation behind what we say and do, in our methods as well as our goals, and in our hopes and dreams. It is to long to see God's name hallowed and his will done in Congress and everywhere else as it is done in heaven. That's how we pray. Now, Jesus knows that this is an enormous challenge. In fact, it is absolutely, utterly, totally beyond us. It's beyond the church. It's beyond you and me, which is why Jesus wants us to pray for it. <laughs> That's why it's built right in to, to the Lord's Prayer. Pray the kingdom down. It's the only way it's going to happen. Pray righteousness down. It's the only way it's going to happen. Holy love for God, holy love for neighbor across nations and across communities is a miracle. And so we pray. Now think of what all this means for our political engagement, it means that we are really going to care. It means that we're going to care for our world. We'll work hard and with humility to sort through and to seek to advance the policies and the platforms and the candidates that, uh, 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 that nudge um, people, public life in what we see to be the right direction. We might even run for public office. You know, we're so cynical about public office. There are so many really decent Christians who have a profound and deep and humble moral compass who don't want to touch politics. That's wrong. That's not that we're all supposed to, but we might even want to run for public office. Now, this will all be what I'm calling downstream work, but further upstream, giving shape to all of our efforts will be a prayer-filled longing a constantly prayer-filled longing for people to get along with God and with each other, and a longing that we ourselves will be right with God and people. That's the big picture. Now, let me, um, let me try to be more concrete. How will this upstream hunger and thirst show up in our downstream public lives. Think in three categories. Number one, uh, the hunger to be right with God. Number two, the hunger to be right with people. And number three, the zeal to inject hope into public life. I've got two on the first one, two on the second one, and basically one on the third. Here's the first one. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, 
We will long to be right with God. And what does that mean? It means, among other things, that we will be humble. Humble in all of our public engagements. Poor in spirit is the phrase Jesus uses. We will readily admit that God is infinitely wise and we are only marginally wise at best. We will be hungry for his wisdom from whatever source, even from the opposition, even from the people on the other side of the aisle, on how best to work at putting things right in the world. We will not be smug or belligerent, thinking we have the best plan all figured out. We will be hungry for what we do not know, and we will be hungry to understand, not self-satisfied with what we do know and understand. Columnist David French writes convincingly of what he calls negative polarization in politics. By that term, he means that people are increasingly aligning themselves not around a commonly held vision for the public good, but around a common hatred for those who oppose them uh, politically. More Christian parents are going on record saying that they would rather have their child marry an unbeliever than to have their child marry someone who belongs to the political party that they despise. And I must say, in response to those attitudes, where is the humility? Where is the teachability in such attitudes? When is the last time we sat with someone whose politics we don't get or like? Simply and humbly to listen to them, not to argue, but to listen and to understand and to learn from God through the encounter with them. For believe it or not, he can speak even through a donkey. God can speak through anybody, even the people you think, uh, whose ideas you think are just nuts and crazy. Where is the humility? So that's the first thing related to um, longing to be right with God. Here's the second thing related to longing to be right with God in our public life. We will be patient and trusting rather than fearful, frantic, and manipulative, waiting upon God's timing for the outcomes we seek. We will be peacemakers. Why? because we ourselves are at peace. Have you noticed how apocalyptic political rhetoric is these days? One way or another we hear, act now or America will collapse in ruins. Two years ago, as we were gearing up for the 2020 election, Josh Wood reported the following in The Guardian. He, quote, in the 2016 presidential election, Donald Trump surged into office, spreading paranoid warnings to voters that if, we were not, that if he were not elected, the U.S. would become a failed socialist state and that immigrants entering the country over the southern border would spread violence and disease. Unless we think that only comes from the right. Listen to Andrew Yang, who said, and this commentator comments, uh, he quotes Yang, he says to me, Without dramatic change, the best case, scenario, best case scenario is a hyper-stratified society like something out of Hunger Games. There's, that's apocalyptic, my goodness. Something out of Hunger Games. With the occasional mass shooting, the worst case scenario, Andrew Yang says, is widespread despair, violence, and the utter collapse of our society. According to a poll, uh, says Josh um, Wood, according to a poll taken in 2018, 
31% of Americans said it was likely that there would be a civil war within the next five years, including 37% of Democrats. Now, when you and I choose to live out of the Beatitudes, when we choose to do that, such rhetoric, whether it's coming from the left or from the right, will not trigger us. It won't trigger us. We hunger and thirst, indeed we do. We hunger and, and thirst as those who long for a better world, but we do so with hope rather than fear and anger, knowing that Jesus is at work preparing a feast for our famished world. Notice in this same context that Jesus blesses the meek. Blessed are the meek. The meek are those who are like him, who use the power and the opportunity that the Father gives them, but never in order to force the Father's hand or to change the Father's timetable or agenda. Jesus waited on his Father for food and for vindication in the wilderness. He waited upon him for those things, and in due time, Time now at the right hand of the Father, this happened. Jesus has inherited the earth. But he had to go through hell and back before that happened. He waited. Learning from Jesus, we may do our best, we will do our best to win an argument or an election when we are convinced that this is important, but we will not have to win right now. We won't have, we won't have to win ever, <laughs> even not now. Nor will we grow disheartened, bitter, or afraid when the result of our efforts is forestalled, as it almost inevitably is in the broken world in which we live. We will be content simply to have done the right thing. We will be content simply to have been faithful regardless of the outcome. So here's what I'm trying to say with respect to loving God um, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, uh, longing for that kind of relationship to be paramount in our inner lives and outward lives, a politics of impatience, a politics of fear, and a politics of ends justifying the means simply does not rise in the life of the Christian who is hungry and thirsty to be right with God in his public life. It doesn't happen if the Beatitudes are your song, are my song. So let me move on to our relationship to people. Two things about that. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will long to be right with people. Number one, that means, among other things I could say, we will always treat people with respect. Always, always, always. We will do it face-to-face, -face. we'll do it on tweet, we'll do it in any venue you can choose. We will always treat them with respect, even and especially when we disagree with them. When we absolutely despise their politics, we will still respect them. Um, Nicodemus, you know who, who Nick was? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the opposition with respect to Jesus. Jesus wasn't a pro-Pharisee guy. Um, Jesus had strong things to say 
about the Pharisees, but when Nicodemus came to him one night to sound him out, John 3, Jesus treated him with respect, didn't he? You know the story. He treated him, he was, he was strong with him, but he was respectful towards him. He neither demonized him nor dismissed him with contempt. He didn't cancel him. He did not cancel Nicodemus. The people who disagree with us over politics are not. Please hear this. Please hear this. The church doesn't get this. And I need to say this and you need to hear it. The people who disagree with us over politics are not the enemies of God. Nor are they subhuman. Nor are they dismissible by tweet. They are not the two-dimensional incarnations of their voting records. What are they instead? They are three-dimensional creatures of great potential glory made in the image of God with stories that have shaped them and whom we in love need to know and seek to understand. This is true even if they hate us for our efforts to deal honestly with them and follow through honestly in what we think is the right thing to do publicly and politically. That's the first thing that hungering and thirsting for righteousness means with respect to people. Here's the second thing that hungering and thirsting for righteousness with respect to people means. It means that because we respect people, we will want for them, we will long for them to have what we long to have for ourselves. That's the second great commandment. We will, in other words, love our neighbors as we love ourselves. If we want satisfying work, whether volunteer or paid, and we want a sufficient income to feed, clothe, and shelter those we love, we will want these things for our neighbor as well, and we will want them from every neighbor that we have. If we want working plumbing, if we want clean water, if we want affordable housing, if we want decent health care, if we want decent education for our children, if we want safety from street violence and sexual abuse, we will want these things for our neighbors as well, all of them. And if we want the First Amendment freedom to speak our minds and to express our faith in public life, we will want this as well for our Muslim neighbors, our atheist neighbors, our Republican neighbors, our Democrat neighbors, our straight neighbors, and our gay neighbors. Now, we may find ourselves disagreeing on the best strategies for advancing these neighbor loves, what I call downstream politics, yes, and there's a lot of room for discussion and argument at that level, for sure. But we will genuinely care about our neighbors and we will care about all of them, not just the neighbors who belong to our tribe. Oh, God, God forgive us our tribalism. God forgive us our tribalism. Jesus died to make one new humanity out of every tribe and out of every race. That's what we long for. That's what we work toward. Tribalism has got to go. If we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, we will care for our neighbors and we'll care for them deeply. We are hungering and thirsting.
for this. We will be like Jesus who fasted in the wilderness and who thirsted from the cross for the healing of this broken world. With the Spirit's help, rejoicing that Jesus' life and death lived in our stead, has opened the way to the Father's embrace and a new, satisfying, and everlasting world, we will follow Jesus into the world of our neighbor's needs. All of our neighbors. And let me go now to the last thing about hope, injecting hope into public life. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will inject hope into public life by celebrating the good stuff whenever it happens and whoever does it, even if it's one of the bad guys. Um, Jesus speaks repeatedly of blessing nine times in the Beatitudes. Why? Why, does he, why doesn't he say, good are those who, good are those who, good are... You know, he says, blessed are those who, blessed are those who, blessed... And he goes over, he goes on nine times. He says it over... Why does he do that? Because, because he means to flood us with a positive vision of what things can be like and of what things will be like when his good work on this planet is done. We pray for the kingdom to come, not because we are in despair about the fact that it never will, but because we are hopeful and sure that it will come. We pray for the kingdom because it will come and has already started to break out. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, then, is not to despair, it's to hope. We hunger for it because it's coming, and we get to celebrate every hint of it. We look for and celebrate. In his memoir, A Promised Land, Barack Obama describes his very interesting transition to the White House. He writes, whether because of his respect, speaking of, of George W. Bush, he says, whether because of his respect for the institution, lessons from his father, bad memories of his own transition, uh, there were rumors that some Clinton staffers had removed the W key from the White House computers on their way out the door, or just basic de decency, President Bush would end up doing all he could do to make the 11 weeks between my election and his departure go smoothly. Every office in the White House provided my team with detailed how-to manuals. His staffers made themselves available to meet with their successors, answer questions, and even be shadowed by uh, as they carried out their du duties. The Bush daughters, Barbara and Jenna, by that time young adults, rearranged their schedules to give my children, Malia and Sasha, their own tour of the quote-unquote fun parts of the White House. I promised myself that when the time came, I would treat my successor the same way. President Bush's departing gestures and President-elect Obama's choice to report those gestures tell a really wonderful story, one we need to hear one that speaks of God's goodness infiltrating public life and encourage us to reflect it. Think for a moment about bipartisanship. It's in short supply these days, and even when it happens, it's underreported because it does not draw viewers the way controversy does. But we get to look for it. 
We get to love it. We get to call attention to it. It's part of how we do battle upstream in our broken world. Part of how we do upstream politics, holding before the eyes of our friends pictures, small and great, however imperfect, of the sort of world that Jesus lived and died to create. On May 18th, the House passed a bill against Asian hate crimes by a margin, get this, 364 to 62. The Senate had previously passed it 94 to 1. This was a good thing. This was a very good thing, an act to be noted and celebrated. It was right to celebrate it because, first, because it was good in itself. There will be no racism. There will be no hate crimes in heaven, but also because so many people crossed the aisle to, to sign this, to bring this law into building. They celebrated, they acted in a bipartisan way, and that itself was a really good thing. So what I'm trying to say this, with respect to this is we fight God's battles with particular effectiveness, particular effectiveness, not when we catch the people who are on our side doing something right, but when we catch people on the other side doing something right, and we tell them, and we commend them for it publicly. Is there a relative whose politics you can't stand? The chances are there is, who just did something really decent. Well, acknowledge it to the person. Acknowledge it publicly. Don't be a cynic about their motives. Give them the benefit of the doubt. God can sort things out, and he will. You and I do not have to sort out people's motives. And in the meantime, you have reached across the aisle. You have given a little picture of Christ's new order. So let me summarize what I've been saying. Our proper aim, proper aim in upstream politics is not to make ourselves happier. It's not even to make ourselves better. It's not to make ourselves safer. It's not to make ourselves wealthier. It's not to win. It is not to advance our parties or even our nation's cause. It is essentially, most profoundly, to make our Father happier because the way we carry on as Americans makes more clearly visible what our Father is like and what our Father loves, and what he has given his all, his Son, to bring to pass. For this we work. For this we pray. For this we wait. For this we hunger and thirst. Imagine if every Christian in America decided that he or she was going to live out of the Beatitudes. The church would be unbelievable. It would be a light on a hill. It would be something that the world could not make any sense of because the political differences are real. And yet somehow we're working with them and we're loving in the process of working with them. Now, I have to, I'm going to end, but... I, I, I imagine if you take even a half or third of what I've said, um, 
uh, you're going to be pretty overwhelmed, okay? Maybe depressed. And that's what I want to do. I want to overwhelm and depress you. My purpose is to make you feel really, really bad so that you give up and you go home and weep and just, uh, and just throw in the towel. No, that's not what I want to do. I want to encourage you. So let me, um, let me end with this as you think about this profound challenge associated with upstream politics. Please remember, please remember, never forget, and be encouraged by the fact that the most important element of the righteousness for which we must hunger, being right with God, is in fact God's present and eternal gift to us. Already and forever our possession in Jesus, our Savior and King. I said this once already, but let me say it again. Don't miss this. The Beatitudes isn't just a manifesto on how we're supposed to live. It is a description. It is a perfect description of Jesus himself, of all that he is for us, of all that he is in us, of all that he is on our behalf. Jesus is everything he calls us to be in the Beatitudes, and he is all these lovely things in us and on our behalf. Jesus became humble. He became poor in spirit. He gave up his glory, didn't he? Philippians 2, for us. Jesus came into this world mourning, his heart broken over our sins and sadness. He came into this world hungering and thirsting that the holy love of God would be known in us and throughout the world, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Again, he did it because he loves us. He did it for our sakes. Jesus chose meekness, surrendering his power to his Father's will for us. Father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that was the story of his whole life. Jesus is even now, not just was, he was, but he is full of mercy presently towards you, <laughs> towards me. His heart just is poured out over you in great mercy. His mercies are new every morning. They were new this morning. And they'll be new tomorrow morning. He is full of mercy towards us. And Jesus is pure in heart, isn't he? Um, offering that purity in place of our often hard and complicated hearts when he went to his death on the cross. And because he went to his cro the cross offering himself, he has made peace. He's the peacemaker par excellence. He has made peace between us and his father, suffering persecution and reviling in hell itself in order to bring us safely and everlastingly home. Do you know your home now? You don't feel like it's your home, but your home, your home, he brought you there. You're already home. You're already safely home. Feast on that. You're still on your way, but that doesn't cancel out the fact that you're already there. Both are true. You're home. So our efforts to do the right thing politically, to love our neighbors as ourselves and to get along with each other as we try, though they will never be all that they should be, are nevertheless today and at this moment acceptable to the one person whose acceptance matters most because of Jesus. And they will improve. They need to improve. They will improve with the help of our King who works with us and lives in us and promises to satisfy us as we continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's pray.
Lord, uh, the Beatitudes would be utterly impossible were you not alive for us and in us, but you are. And so we come to you with deepest thanks. You know our weakness. You know how poorly we behave sometimes publicly. You know how we have failed. You, you know how we have not been the people we should be. And yet you love us and you have forgiven us and you have justified us. And now you're at work in us. And it's only a matter of time before what you started will be completed and the church will be uh, like a bride in her splendor coming down from heaven. Lord, how we thank you for what you're doing. And we pray for your help that we will be better at upstream politics. We ask this for your namesake. Amen.